a look inside our reader's portfolio, the collapse of the People's Trust and buying overseas shares. You're listening to the Personal Finance Show with me, Kate Bealey. Today, I'm joined by Richard Parkin, Head of Pensions Policy at Fidelity International. And we're going to start by looking at this week's portfolio clinic. So we've had a reader write in. This is Kate, a 51-year-old self-employed physiotherapist, and she wants to retire on an income of 13000 a year. But will her pot be enough to generate that? So, Richard, our reader wants to retire in 15 years. Now, she's asking if she should just be focusing on income-generating shares alone to get the benefit of that reinvested income. Come in her sip. In terms of what uh, real investment horizon is, it, it may well be that it's longer than 15 years because the implication is she's probably going to stay invested through retirement. So although retirement may happen in 15 years, she could find that she'll be living on the portfolio for another 20 or even 30 years beyond that. So um, taking an overly cautious uh, investment approach at this stage may not serve her well. Certainly um, income generating funds, even if you're not taking an income, do have a benefit of of moderating downside risk. So so uh, things like equity income tend to have less uh, risk of falling, and that's very important when you're drawing money down. But ahead of that, um, if she is, uh, and it looks like she has got quite a strong appetite for risk, there's there's probably worth pursuing a more growth oriented strategy. Okay, um, how she mentioned strategies like drip feeding. How can investors kind of maximise growth in their SIPs using those kind of strategies? Yeah, so so in terms of, of drip feeding, um, I mean, I guess the, the, the key thing to, for maximising any form of pension investment is, is just get as much into the wrapper as possible, into the pensions wrapper. So it's so, so not really an investment strategy, more a, a saving strategy. Um, we do see that people leave a lot of their annual pension allowance unused, uh, even if they've got other investments. And just, just a reminder of what the, the rule is there, you... Would you normally have a, a forty thousand pounds annual allowance each year for your your SIP? Um, you have to have uh, a sufficient earnings, so you've got to have more than forty thousand earnings in order to make the full contribution. If you've got less, than you can only contribute as a hundred percent of your earnings. Um, but you don't necessarily you don't need to take all your pay and put it in. So if you've got uh, ISA investments, say, and particularly if you're, you're reasonably close to retirement, you might use those to fund pension contributions on the grounds that if you do need to get your hands on the money, once you hit 55, you can now. So so we think there's a, a, a lot more scope for people to just manage their wrappers um, and, and move money between them. OK, but the, the lesson is just get in as much as you can. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, as in, as in this case, she's some way off achieving her retirement goal, so she's going to need to make as uh, best she can out of all the tax allowances that are available to her. Yeah, we'll come to how realistic it is in a minute. Yeah. But um, before that, she's very keen on the idea of investing in a Bitcoin investment trust. Um how do you think people should you know, approach very high-risk investments like this? How much of a SIP should they ever take up in this kind of position? Right. So, well, I mean, I think the general rule for, for any high-risk investment is you should only invest what you're prepared to lose completely. Um, you know, I know there's a lot of talk about uh, diversification in your in your magazine, and that's a, a great strategy. Um, and whilst an investment trust might diversify across Bitcoin investments, it's clearly all exposed to the, the Bitcoin uh, market. So, so even in that, I don't think diversification is going to to reduce the risk. Um, too much, so uh, it, you know it depends what her attitude is. But but I would suggest that should just be a small part of her portfolio. Yeah, um, and so she said she wants an income of thirteen thousand a year. 
just how big would your portfolio need to be theoretically to achieve a, that kind of income, given where we are with inflation and that kind of thing? What kind of return are you needing? Yeah, so so um, so if we're looking, uh, well, if, if we look at what you'd need to have at, the, at age sixty-five to support that, I guess the the starting point is. If you're looking to create a lifetime income at that level and have it inflation protected, the only way you're going to be able to guarantee to do that is to buy an inflation-linked annuity. Um, if we look at where rates are today, um, it's about 3.5% uh, a year on what you invest into one of those. So so you, more or less you'd need 30 times your starting income. So you need probably nearly £400,000 in order to get a guaranteed lifetime income. But that's, that's just the starting point. Um, if you move away from that and accept you're going to have to take some risk, and it does sound she's got some other sources of income, so, so that may be um, an okay thing to do, um, you can then start looking at uh, at investment strategies, which, of course, won't be guaranteed either in terms of lasting your lifetime or in terms of matching inflation, but but certainly should do. So um, the the thing that um, is interesting here and, and uh, we see a lot of is that often people talk about how much you can withdraw from your SIP um, in a way that gives you a very high chance of not running out of money. And that that's fine, um, but it also means there's a very high chance you'll leave a lot of money when you die so so this idea of the so four, people being too cautious well yeah so the four percent rule or as as morningstar might have you say now it's a three percent rule because because of where we are with inflation that's great but but it's important to recognize those strategies um are designed so that if you keep doing that you, there's a high chance you won't run out of money i, I think perhaps uh, and particularly for those customers who are prepared to take a, a bit more risk and have a bit more flexibility it might make sense to say well I'll start off taking a, a higher level of income, but if markets don't go very well, then I will uh, take a bit a bit less. If they do well, then I can afford to take a bit more. So you think people should be kind of flexible in their approach to how much they take every year? I, I think that's what you have to be with with drawdown with or with, with with any form of investment income. If you just keep blindly taking the same amount of money out of a portfolio, then yes, there is a, a risk that you'll eventually run into ruin. The, the danger with being super cautious, of course, is you know if you get to seventy five and you still got loads of money in your portfolio. You may not be healthy enough to spend it. Generally, mm-hmm. generally, people tend to want to spend more money at the start of their retirement and less later on. So something that gives you a big pot of money later in life may not be helpful. may help you pay for long-term care, but if that's not the, the aim, then chance that you don't get the retirement that you've saved so hard for. OK, so um, this person's portfolio currently stands at um, 92, a bit over uh, almost 93,000. Um, pounds. So how much do you think she would really need to grow that by over 15 years? Well, so, so, you know, if we look at that, uh, the the target of 400,000, she's clearly a a long way from that. And certainly on investment growth alone, that just doesn't seem feasible. Because of course, as well as growing to that number, you've got to counter inflation. So she needs to get a a real return that would be probably into double digits in order to achieve that. And what what do you think a kind of realistic real return is for a balanced portfolio? (laughs) Well, yes, for a balanced portfolio, probably in the range of sort of 3% now, I would think, would be any any more aggressive than that would be um, overly optimistic. Um, What's not clear from this, though, is what other contributions she's intending to make over the next 15 years because that's still a good long time to top up your pension if she has got opportunity to bring other investments and get some of that 
that tax relief benefit, she may find that that gives her a boost as well. But on the face of it, it looks like she may Pretty tough, to. tough ask. But of course, she is she is still talking about sixty retiring at sixty five, which I know many of us will want to do. Increasingly, that's becoming less common, and certainly in fifteen years, the, the state pension age will be uh, not quite at sixty eight, but certainly sixty seven. So t- there will be a trend for people to retire a bit later or, or carry on working beyond that. Yeah. Um, so I want to actually move away from the portfolio now and just talk a bit about what's happening with um, pensions as the city regulator has been stepping in quite a lot recently and, and making some quite severe warnings about things related to pension freedoms, for example, and, um, and certainly pension transfers. Um, so the FCA has, has said that it's investigating pension freedoms. What what are they looking into now? Yeah, so so the the FCA has been put in an incredibly difficult position with pension freedom. Um, you know, it's all, all, always difficult regulating such a complex market, um, and, and it, of course the FCA were concerned about some of the things that were going on before pension freedom came in. But suddenly they've been asked to um, police a market where people can do anything, and they are doing all sorts of all sorts of things. Um, so, so the FCA is in some ways trying to play a bit of catch up and understand what people are doing and, and really whether they're making the right choices. And even if they're not making the right choices, whether they actually understand the choices they are making. So, um, the, the the work that the FCA is doing is something called the Retirement Outcomes Review, and is a uh, if you like a, a looking at the market. There's been a lot of time talking to providers like Fidelity. Um, and talking to customers and just understanding or just finding out what they understood when they made the choices. And, and they they have identified a few areas where, where they're concerned. So we'll just, just maybe kind of run through those. So um, they they surprisingly, in my view, seem to be quite comfortable where people were taking cash and, and just uh, emptying their, their pension accounts that generally people weren't making um, completely daft choices there. People understood that. I, I was surprised. I think there there are some people who are perhaps paying more tax, um, and we know that there's a lot of people who are just taking cash because they can, because they're frightened the government are going to change the rules again. Um, mm. the, the other thing they're worried about is people. There's a lot more people going into income drawdown or pension drawdown now, and there's a concern that that is quite a complex product. And do people really understand it now? I won't go into the technical detail, but a lot of the people who are going into drawdown are doing that because they're just taking their tax-free cash. And there's a big question about, if I'm just taking my tax-free cash, do I really need to understand all of the complexities of drawdown? Because yeah. what the other option would be that you just take the lump sum and, and then leave the rest yeah, of and the that's what And that's what, so if I look at Fidelity customers, probably about uh, two-thirds to three-quarters of our customers who go into drawdown are just taking tax-free cash and are not taking any income. So effectively, it's just like taking a bit of money out of your savings. Um, where drawdown gets really complicated is when you are trying to take this sort of regular income and trying to make it last. So, so the FCA is right to be worried, but but again, they need to think about well, what what are people trying to do? And then the, the final sort of concern is um, in terms of what customers are doing um, is people don't seem to be shopping around, so they they tend to be taking uh, money just from their existing plan rather than trying to move around. And again. If people are um, going into drawdown to take income, then that might be a concern. If they're just taking tax-free cash and carrying on saving, then the, the fact they're not moving may not be a worry. Okay. Yeah. Okay. And um, 
We are hearing a lot as well, aren't we, about ill-advised final salary pension transfers. And this is people, this is people what, kind of cashing in basically a final salary guaranteed pension in order to take a big sum of money. Yeah. Is that is that a good explanation? Yeah, it it is, and and there's there's a, a number of drivers. So so the fact is, um, you know, defined benefit pensions are great. They they give people lots of certainty, um, but the benefits that they pay may not be exactly what what somebody wants. So so in particular, we're finding this with the baby boomers. People may have a number of final salary schemes. And actually, they don't need that much guaranteed income. So, so a, a number of people are saying, "Well, actually, I'd, I'd, do, I'd like the idea of having pension freedom and being able to to take some cash." And a lot of people are saying, I, "I'm quite worried that I might die before I get, you know, value for my pension. I'd like to leave something behind." So that that's what's driving people. On top of that, because interest rates are relatively low, when you when you ask for a, what we call transfer value, which says what, what you get instead of your pension, the numbers are huge. People mm. people with a uh, you know a twenty five thousand pound pension are being shown numbers that might be eight, nine hundred thousand pounds. And so they're um, they're actually putting a lot of pressure on advisors saying, I want to transfer give me positive advice. And, and again advisors are in a bit of a tricky place here because customers are getting very insistent. So um, so FCA is looking at that. They are being very active. They have suspended a number of advisors where they're, they're not happy about what's going on. But, but more broadly, they've just published a consultation about what good transfer value uh, transfer advice looks like. And, and that's about really understanding what somebody's uh, situation is and, and what options they have. So if we go back to that, that um, idea about people wanting to move their pensions so they can leave something behind for loved ones, Another way of solving that problem might be to say, well, take your defined benefit pension and use some of the income for that to buy a life insurance policy. So it sounds simple, but you can achieve the same thing. And so just trying to make sure advisors are thinking around, you know, the other alternatives. Yeah, because I, I guess the sum of money might look huge, might it? But that does have to last you for your entire yeah. lifetime and, and you're giving up guarantees, aren't in, you? Indeed. And going back to back to where we came in on the case study, you know, the fact that just a £13,000 income, if you want that guaranteed for life with inflation proofing, which is what you get with most defined benefit pension plans, that costs you nearly £400,000. You can see that the, the the bottom line here is that guaranteed lifetime income that keeps pace with inflation is expensive, whether it's in a defined benefit scheme. So you shouldn't kid yourself that you can um, just take the money out and and you know be be massively better off. Sound investing and good advice may get you there, and if you're sick or you're single or or sadly both of those, then you may find that that you get more flexibility and a, a better income overall. But for a lot of people, it's going to be better to stay put. And, and if just one, one more point I'd make on that, it's important that people recognise that when an advisor tells them that they shouldn't transfer, that that is valuable advice. Yeah. Saying that, oh, you know, I've had bad advice because they didn't tell me I could transfer. Well, well, actually, the advisors told you a sensible financial decision to make, and mm. that's as valuable as, as one to move. All right. Well, thanks very much, Richard. That's all very helpful stuff. At the end of the show, we'll be looking at the collapse of the People's Trust. But before that, we're going to take a look at overseas shares and why you might want to hold them. Um, I'm joined. Sorry. Them. I'm joined now by Emma Adjaman, personal finance writer. Um, Emma, why would somebody want to hold overseas shares? 
Well, the simple reason is that there are lots of exciting, fast-growing companies that are not listed in the UK, unfortunately. Um, the most obvious are the tech stocks, which have done really well in the last few years. The US um, companies are so-called FANGs, Facebook, Apple, Amazon, Netflix and Google, but also the Asian tech giants like Samsung, Tencent and Alibaba. OK, so I mean, why couldn't you just buy the same companies in the UK? Um, simply because they're not listed on UK exchanges. Um, and actually, since the sale of Arm to a Japanese company recently, there are much fewer options for investors who want to access technology companies in the UK. OK, so are there other benefits of holding overseas shares? Um, the key benefit, I think, is probably diversification because you get the UK market is quite concentrated, has quite a high number of financials and oil and gas companies. Other exchanges have different kinds of companies on there. So if you want to get broader exposure to different kind of companies and in particular technology companies, it's a good reason to look abroad. OK, and what about currency? Is that a benefit, a risk or both? Um, it can be both. It really depends on how the pound performs against the other currency. So if the pound strengthens against another currency, the value of the shares in the other currency are going to be worth less once translated back into sterling. But if, as has happened in the last year, the pound weakens, then the value of shares in overseas currencies you know, will be worth more once translated back. OK, so definitely not something to bank on either way. And can anyone hold overseas shares? How do you buy them? You can buy international shares in North American and European markets through most brokers and platforms. But if you want to go further afield to places like Asia, there are a few brokers and platforms that allow you to do that. OK, so what are the issues with doing this? Are there tax issues? There are definitely risks to holding overseas shares. I mean, we've already spoken about currency, which can go against you. Um, but there's also the issue of tax, as you bring up, because there's potential to be taxed twice on the income that you receive from overseas shares, both in the UK and in the country that, that the shares are based in. OK, so how are US stocks treated for tax purposes? Because those are quite special, aren't they? Yes. Um, so the UK has a number of double agreement treaties with other countries, um, which should mean that investors can claim back the amount of tax that they pay on overseas shares. And the, in the US, if you're an overseas investor, a UK investor, um, as long as you fill in a form, the W8BEN form, you can reduce the amount of tax that you'll pay from 30% to 15%. Okay, brilliant. Are there any other issues surrounding holding overseas shares? Well, it just depends on where you're actually investing because some companies in different markets, for example, emerging markets, might have less good transparency or reporting standards and there might be an increased um, risk of political changes, political instability. So that's something else investors need to bear in mind. OK, so when it comes to actually buying these, you said that not all brokers will let you buy overseas shares. Um, do the ones that do, do they charge extra? They, yes, they do. Um, so most platforms will charge a foreign exchange fee on top of a standard dealing fee to, tr to trade a share. OK. And what kind of charge could you expect to pay then? Does it vary quite widely? Um, it does. But in general, most platforms will have a fixed standard fee and they'll charge a percentage for 
foreign exchange and that can go up to 1.5%, which is pretty steep considering that if you're buying £10,000 of shares, you're just spending £150 just for the foreign exchange conversion. Okay, so what kind of broker charges the least? Well, Dutch online broker De Hero is actually charging the lowest fees um, across the industry um, and they allow you to trade across 25 different markets. Um, so you can trade US shares it costs 50 cents, and that's in euros, plus 0.004 dollars per share. And to trade European shares, it charges four euros plus 0.04% per trade. So quite quite low rates there. Yeah, now how are they doing that? How are they charging such low amounts? Well, they say they're able to do it because unlike most brokers, they don't run any of their systems via third parties. And they run all their settlement clearing, trading, IT systems in-house. Okay, Um, so for more on all of that and for a full table on the different costs and and how to hold overseas shares cheaply, take a look at the magazine. But finally, we're going to turn to the People's Trust. It launched with a great fanfare over a year ago, but now the dream appears to be over. The trust was set to IPO this month, but it collapsed this week amid a lack of demand. Um, Emma, what was this trust? Well, the People's Trust, as you were say, uh, saying, was trying to raise a minimum of £50 million pounds to list on the London Stock Exchange. And it would have been a multi-manager fund with a focus on sustainable wealth creation. OK, so what was, what was it trying to do that was, that was different? Well, I mean, one of the key differences um, about this fund was that it was trying to sort of break out of a short term that defines much of the industry. And it was actually championed by Daniel Godfrey, who is the former chief executive of the Investment Association. It was doing, trying to do a number of things. One of the ways it was to, which it was trying to tackle that short term thinking was by giving an external fund manager seven year contracts, which is much um, longer than the usual amount. And the other interesting thing it did was that it, it crowdfunded all its startup costs from the general public rather than going through an institution. Because it was trying to be kind of independent? Or? Yes, because it was trying to be independent and, as the sort of title suggests, um, be a trust run. Uh, by the people, for the people. Okay, so I think you mentioned there how much Daniel was hoping to raise. How much did he need to raise and and how much did he raise? Sure, Um, well it was looking to raise a minimum of £50 million to list but in the event um, he didn't give an exact figure um, for how much they did raise but it was obviously below that and he said that the trust was on track to reach the halfway point which suggests of something around £25 million. Okay. Why did he fail to get over the line then? What was his reason for, for that lack of demand? Well, the key thing really was that there was not, not enough money raised from institutions and wealth managers, although the trust was quite well supported amongst retail investors. But obviously retail investors have less capital than institutions and then without the institutional backing, it just wasn't enough for this trust to go forward. Okay, so why do people say it didn't appeal then? Well, there are a number of reasons. Um, Wealth managers may not have liked the trust because as a multi-manager fund, um, it was choosing fund managers externally, which is actually something similar to what wealth managers do themselves. So in some sense, it wasn't really a natural fit for that audience. 
and also other people were put off by the fact that managers were being offered seven-year contracts because you could be stuck with a poor performing manager for a really long time. Others also felt it was quite similar to trusts that were available in the market already. Um, there are actually two other multi-manager funds, Witten and Lions Trust, and both of them would be have been cheap are cheaper than the People's Trust would have been. Okay, and. Were there complaints as well about the asset allocation model, what you ended up with? Yes. I mean, basically, the way that the trust would have worked was that it was going to be split over five different areas. And some commentators felt that, you know, that's a kind of arbitrary Having number. an even amount in yeah. each didn't work. Mm. So what is Daniel saying? Is he going to try again or, or is he going to leave this alone? At the moment, he has no plans, but he didn't rule out trying again in the future. Okay, thanks, Emma. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. So for everything we've discussed, pick up the magazine. Otherwise, we'll catch you at the same time next week. Have a good weekend. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.